This episode contains violent content. My name is Hunter Keegan. I'm back again with more down-home fear for you. I felt like it's been quite a while since we've done an especially heavy episode, and I thought I'd share one of the stories that I previously thought we would never cover. And then I've got another weird, twisted, and disturbing story to close out the show with. So let's get into it. things are as scary as a school shooting. We think of schools as places for learning and growth, not violence. Sadly, school shootings are no stranger to the United States. Today I have an example of a school shooting that took place in Jonesboro, Arkansas in the late 1990s. Just one example of a school shooting from the 90s, the Jonesboro school shooting, also known as the West Side school shooting, occurred about one year before Columbine and is largely forgotten these days. At the time of the shooting, Jonesboro had a population of about 50,000. It's a working class community in northeastern Arkansas. March 24th, 1998, West Side Middle School. At 12.30 p.m., a fire alarm was set off and students began exiting outside to the playground and parking lot, when suddenly, teachers noticed the sound of what initially were thought to be firecrackers. They couldn't tell which direction the shots were coming from, and suddenly students and faculty began falling to the ground screaming. At first, the shots were slow and methodical, and then they became more frenetic and rapid, The scene was bloody and chaotic. After a few moments, the teachers began realizing that the shots were coming from a wooded area next to the school. By the time the police arrived, the shooting had stopped, but construction workers who were working on the roof of the school told police that they'd spotted two people running off into the woods. The suspects were on foot, and police followed a dirt road into the woods to find the suspects just about 200 yards away from where they had initially been firing on the crowd. Shockingly, the police found that the shooters were not adults. They were two young boys dressed in camo attire. They were caught just 20 minutes after the fire alarm began ringing at the school. Both of the suspects were students from Westside Middle School. They were Andrew Golden, who was 11 years old, in 6th grade, and Mitchell Johnson, who was 13 years old, in 7th grade. The kids were arrested and searched. According to the sheriff, the kids were armed to the teeth. Every one of their pockets contained ammunition or hunting knives. The perpetrators were taken to a detention center, while the wounded students and teachers were rushed to a local hospital. Four young girls were killed that day. Brittany Varner, who was 11, Natalie Brooks, who was 11, 
Paige Ann Herring, who was 12, and Stephanie Johnson, who was 12. 32-year-old teacher Shannon Wright was also killed in the gunfire. In addition, nine children and one teacher were badly wounded. Needless to say, the town was horrified and disturbed by this event. No tragedy like this had ever befallen the Jonesboro community. As for the two students who had committed these heinous acts, Mitchell was a straight-A student who participated in a church group that sang songs for senior citizens at retirement communities. His mother described him as truly a good kid, and that she never thought him capable of violence. But Mitchell was originally from a troubled home in Minnesota, where he lived with an abusive father until his parents went through a nasty divorce when he was nine years old. At the time of the divorce, Mitchell's mother was working as a prison guard. She'd met an inmate who she fell in love with, and once the inmate was released, she moved with her children to Arkansas in order to marry her new lover. Mitchell apparently had trouble adjusting to the new school. He was prone to sudden mood swings and was bullied by other students. Mitchell also engaged in self-harm behaviors. Apparently at one time he even used a razor blade to carve the name of a girlfriend into his arm. In 1997, Mitchell was charged with molesting a three-year-old girl. After being arrested, Mitchell would go on to reveal that he had been molested by an older boy beginning when he was about eight years old. It's unknown if the older boy was ever brought to justice, and the juvenile court records regarding Mitchell's own sexual misconduct are sealed from the public to this day. Mitchell had vendettas against many students. He had told other children that he would shoot anyone who wronged him, but the other students never thought he'd actually follow through with the crimes. The other shooter, Andrew Golden, was from a family where he had been taught to use guns at a very early age. At just age six, his parents bought him his first shotgun. He was also taught how to hunt and routinely practiced at a local shooting range. His teachers considered Andrew unremarkable, just a typical 11-year-old boy. There were some warning signs, however, such as when Andrew was in first grade, he shot another student with a toy gun that he had loaded with gravel, injuring the other student. By the age of seven, Andrew began practicing his shooting on pets from his neighborhood. His neighbors began finding their pets dead outside of their homes. Strangely, the two shooters, Mitchell and Andrew, were actually not close friends with each other, and to this day it is unknown exactly when and why they planned this shooting together. On the morning of March 24, 1998, Mitchell left his home. But instead of getting on the school bus, he got into his mother's van and drove off into town without her knowledge. He met up with Andrew at his house where they stocked up on guns and ammunition. After initially trying to use a blowtorch to break into one of his dad's gun safes, Andrew searched the house and found several handguns that were not locked up. Before leaving the house, the kids stocked up on guns, ammo, food, and maps that outlined an escape plan. They drove to Andrew's grandfather's house and stole more guns, including high-powered hunting rifles. They drove to a residential area near the middle school, parked the vehicle, and crept into the wooded area next to the school. Around 12.30pm, Andrew sprinted inside and pulled the fire alarm before returning to the wooded area. 
And as the students and faculty began exiting into the playground and parking lots, Andrew and Mitchell opened fire. On March 25th, the day after the shooting, Mitchell and Andrew were charged with five counts of capital murder and 10 counts of first-degree battery. After being charged, Mitchell wept in his holding cell and asked for a Bible and a priest who he could talk to. Andrew also began crying and begged for his mother. The kids seemed not to understand the amount of trouble that they were in. They even requested pizza for lunch. The request was denied. Soon after the arrests, prosecutors held a meeting with the victims' families to explain how the juvenile justice system worked in the state of Arkansas. Under Arkansas state law, the kids were too young to be tried as adults. The prosecutors explained the kids had to be tried as juveniles. The maximum possible sentence would be for the kids to stay in a juvenile detention facility until age 21, and then they would be released with a clean record. The families were naturally outraged. During the meeting with the prosecutors, the families were screaming and yelling. The prosecution and defense teams agreed ahead of time not to go through with a formal trial. Instead, the facts of the case would be presented in court undisputed. The children would enter their pleas, and the judge alone would decide the verdict. The judge allowed the shooting victims and their families the opportunity to speak in court and describe how their loved ones' murders had impacted them. During the statements from the victims, Mitchell seemed to sadly shake his head, as if reflecting on the terrible act he had committed. However, Andrew sat stone-faced, showing little remorse. The judge also gave the boys the chance to address the court. Andrew declined, but Mitchell decided to read a statement. He said that he was sorry and wished he could change what he had done. He said the killings were a mistake and he didn't think anyone would get hurt. He claimed that he meant to shoot over the heads of the students and simply scare them. Who knows if this is true or not. On August 11th, 1998, the defense attorneys entered their pleas. While Mitchell pled guilty, Andrew claimed that he was not guilty due to reason of temporary insanity. The judge ruled that the two children would be held at a juvenile detention center until age 18, just three years for Mitchell and four years for Andrew. They both were required to stay for an additional three years as well due to federal charges, meaning they would be released when they were 21. The judge openly admitted that in this case, the punishment did not fit the crime, but under the law, there was nothing else he could do. Because the trial was structured differently than a normal trial, the victims' families were able to speak in court, but sadly, this meant that psychiatrists, scientists, etc., as during a normal trial, could not be introduced to explain the potential causes for the children to have committed these murders. Therefore, many important questions have gone unanswered, and the reasoning and causes behind these horrific actions remain unknown. After this incident, the families began lobbying for legal reform for juvenile offenders. They wanted fair sentences and justice for the potential victims of future tragedies. Their efforts were taken very seriously by state officials, 
And in April 1999, Arkansas legislators introduced a new law that would let the state try individuals younger than 14 as adults and also allow sentences to last beyond the individual's 21st birthday. However, there is a stipulation that the prosecutors must prove that the underage offender was aware of the consequences of their actions, which is very difficult to do. Unfortunately, because proving a child's state of mind at the time of a crime is so difficult to do, attempting to charge someone under this new law is extremely risky, and most prosecutors view it as a judicial minefield. People blame all sorts of factors that may have led to the shooting. Everything from gun control laws to parental negligence to video games have been suggested as playing a role in Mitchell and Andrew's thought process. Andrew's parents had little to say about their son's actions after the fact. They claimed to be supportive and loving parents and said that Andrew's violent actions were completely unexpected and that he had acted without warning. On the other hand, Mitchell's mother has spoken in various interviews over the years, and she says she had trouble sleeping at night knowing what her son did. Andrew and Mitchell are among the youngest deadly mass school shooters in American history, and also among the youngest children in the country's history to have been convicted of any murder in general. After the murders, the town of Jonesboro created memorials on site at Westside Middle School. In an area behind the school, they built a memorial park based around the number five to commemorate the five victims killed in the shooting. The park has five trees, five picnic tables, and five stepping stones. Mitchell Johnson walked free in 2005. Andrew Golden was released in 2007. They were the only two living mass shooters in the United States who were not incarcerated. In 2017, the victims' families were awarded $150 million in damages after suing Johnson and Golden. The lawsuit also ensured that Johnson and Golden would never be allowed to profit off of their crimes, meaning, for example, that one of them could not publish a book discussing this shooting and make money off of it. After being released from the juvenile detention center, Andrew changed his name to Drew Grant and moved to Missouri. He died in a head-on collision on a highway in northeastern Arkansas in 2019. His wife and child were in the car with him, but they survived the crash. Mitchell went on to continue criminal activities shortly after being released from prison in 2005. By 2008, he was charged with theft, illegal possession of a firearm, and drug possession charges. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison, but was released on parole in 2015. It is unknown where he currently resides. This story deeply troubles me. In fact, this is the story that made me end up concluding season two of Down Home Fear back in 2017. At the time, I felt that the story was too dark for the show, and its intense subject matter made me realize that it was time for the show to go on hiatus, just for my own, um, let's say, sanity. I rarely get emotional while researching for DHF, but this story gets me pretty worked up. 
I'll admit, some of the footage of the crime scene brought tears to my eyes. It's absolutely awful. Children are covered in blood and being rushed to ambulances. Meanwhile, parents anxiously crowd around, desperately looking for their children and hoping that they aren't among the victims. The prosecutor in this case said that if the children had been over the age of 14, they would have been tried as adults and the prosecutor would have sought the death penalty. It's disturbing to think how these kids were only in jail for a handful of years before being released. Do you think the punishment fit this crime, or would you have liked to see a different sentence? Let me know on Twitter at HHKeegan, or on the Down Home Fear Podcast Facebook group. This next story involves a man who was so abusive that when he was murdered at the hands of his own family members, some thought the killing was actually justified. In 1997, 19-year-old Billy Crowder and two accomplices killed Thurmond Martin, who was Billy's grandfather. Billy shot Martin multiple times in cold blood, but after he was arrested, he claimed that the murder was due to years of abuse from his grandfather. This killing happened 50 miles south of Savannah, Georgia, in a small town called Ludowisi. Population, just 1,600. It's an old-school conservative community where everyone seems to know each other. It's said that the sheriff was one of the most powerful people in the community and that Thurman Martin was well-connected to him, which may have led to law enforcement turning a blind eye to the years of abuse he inflicted on the people around him. In 1997, Martin was a widower living in a church that had been converted into a small home. He lived there with his two grandchildren, Billy, who was 19, and Katie, who was 18. Billy and Katie's mother lived in a trailer behind the home with the kid's stepfather, who was named John Stanton. Martin had a reputation for being a very violent man. It was Martin's house, and he exercised an authoritarian and dominating rule over the household. He sought to control virtually every aspect of his family's lives. He ruled with an iron fist, and he enjoyed being feared by the rest of his family. Billy and Katie were both good students, and from the outside, it appeared that their strict home lives had led to them being productive adults with good futures ahead of them. They stayed out of trouble and kept to themselves. But on May 19, 1997, Billy Crowder called the sheriff's department and said his grandfather, Thurmond Martin, had gone missing. The sheriff's department came to the house and found that some of Martin's clothing was missing, suggesting that perhaps he had decided to leave town for a while. A few days later, the sheriff's department returned to the home and found something peculiar. Billy and Katie and their friends were having a house party, they were joyously dancing and singing. The sheriff's deputies found this to be suspicious, but had no real evidence to go off of, so they continued investigating the disappearance as a missing persons case. But on June 10, 1997, Billy and Katie's mom, who lived in the trailer behind the home, made a shocking revelation to the authorities. 
She said that her father, Thurmond Martin, had raped her multiple times. The sheriff's department was beginning to see that there could have been a motive within the family to kill Martin, the callous patriarch. So they began calling the family members individually for questioning. When Billy was asked if there had been any abuse in the household, he initially responded no. In a later interview, he explained that he could tell from the beginning that the authorities were trying to establish a motive for him, which is why he did not disclose the abuse at first. The sheriff's department had another lead as well, a young man named Jason Jordan. Jason Jordan was a friend of Billy's. They'd known each other for about a year. A couple of weeks after Martin's disappearance, Jason got drunk while visiting his family in North Carolina, and he revealed that he had witnessed a murder earlier in the spring. Concerned, his family decided to call the police in Ludowice, Georgia, to inform them of the potential crime. Jason returned to Ludowice with authorities. They asked him to take a polygraph test, which he complied with. However, he failed the test, and it was discovered that he may actually have been involved in the murder that allegedly had taken place. Jason eventually admitted that he had helped Billy Crowder and his family kill Thurmond Martin. Jason went even further to say that the whole family knew about the murder and that they were complicit with it. Soon after Jason's revelation, Billy Crowder was asked by the sheriff's department to take a polygraph test as well, but he failed. At first, Billy firmly denied any involvement with his grandfather's disappearance, but during one round of questioning, he accidentally said, I didn't kill him with no rifle. Unfortunately for Billy, no one had disclosed what type of murder weapon may potentially have been used. Billy had accidentally incriminated himself, and now the sheriff's department knew that something sketchy had happened to Thurmond Martin. At this point, Billy gave a voluntary confession that he had murdered his grandfather along with the help of Jason Jordan and John Stanton. John Stanton was Billy's stepfather, who lived in the trailer with Billy's mother behind the house. They had snuck into Martin's bedroom in the middle of the night and shot him while he slept. On July 3, 1997, Billy and Jason were arrested. John Stanton also confessed to playing a role in the murder, and he was arrested too. But the reasoning behind the murder was almost as shocking as the murder itself. The family claimed that Thurmond Martin was extremely abusive. As reporters picked up the story, they interviewed the family's neighbors, and the word on the street was that Martin was a cruel and vindictive person who had a long history of terrorizing and harming his daughter and grandchildren. One neighbor described seeing Martin physically abusing Billy Crowder in his garage and constantly swearing at and demeaning Billy and the rest of the family members. It seemed that the murder was an act of revenge. Billy's attorney hired a psychologist who was an expert in domestic violence, and the psychologist researched the family's home life and found that Martin was undoubtedly a dangerous and abusive man. The abuse had started with Martin emotionally, physically, and sexually abusing Billy's mother when she was a young girl. Billy said that his grandfather abused him as well, beating him viciously with hoses, hammers, and other objects. Billy described his grandfather as compassionless, emotionless, cold. On the other hand, Billy's grandmother, Martin's wife, tried to be supportive of Billy and his sister Katie while the two children grew up in Martin's violent household, 
but according to people who knew her, she was well-intended but also weak and highly controlled by Martin. Billy and Katie grew up seeing their grandmother abused at the hands of Martin as well. Their grandmother died of lung cancer in 1997, and at that time Katie was forced to serve as a homemaker for Martin, cooking, cleaning, and taking on nearly every aspect of maintaining the small home. As for why no one ever left the home, Martin would always threaten that if the rest of the family told anyone about the abuse, he would kill them all. Billy said that even if he had gone to the authorities, it wouldn't have mattered because his grandfather was so well-connected with the local sheriff's department. He claimed that the sheriff's department already knew about the abuse and that they turned a blind eye to it. The sheriff's department denies that this was ever the case. As time went on, Billy revealed that he began fantasizing about killing his grandfather when he was about 13 years old. Martin ruled the house using violence and intimidation, and eventually the family cracked. On May 18, 1997, Billy was subjected to an especially brutal beating, at which point he secretly called his friend Jason Jordan and asked him to help murder Martin. Jason agreed, and together he and Billy plotted to kill Martin. The next day, on the evening of May 19th, Billy gathered several guns and picked Jason up from his house. Billy then returned to Martin's home and met up with his stepfather, John Stanton, who also agreed to help kill Martin. The three of them entered the house, and Jason waited in the kitchen while Billy and John entered the bedroom. In interviews, Billy describes shooting his grandfather in the back of the head and watching his skull explode. Billy said that it wasn't until he saw Martin's exposed skull fragments that he fully realized the gravity of what he'd just done. When discussing this, he seems at peace, almost proud of himself. John Stanton also shot Martin, but Jason waited in the kitchen the whole time and was not directly involved in the shooting. Billy, John, and Jason wrapped Martin's body in a shower curtain and dragged the corpse into the front yard. They buried his body right in front of the house. At this point, Billy called the sheriff's department and reported his grandfather is missing. The three men dispersed that night, and Billy returned to the home. He took a shower and went to bed. He says that he slept soundly that night for the first time in years. The next morning, Billy's mother and Katie found out what the three men had done, and they agreed to help with the body disposal. They cleaned up the blood in the bedroom that had been splattered across the bed and the walls. The entire family was working together to carry out this crime and cover it up. Later that day, Billy realized that the grave in the front yard was extremely obvious looking. You could still see the turned up topsoil, and it was very obvious that a hole had just been dug there. So he drove to a local farm and bought some tomato plants. He planted the tomatoes over the shallow grave. On July 3, 1997, after being brought in for questioning, Billy confessed that he had murdered his grandfather. The deputies asked where the body was, and Billy told them to watch a movie called The Last Supper. In the film, a group of people murders dinner guests and disposes of the bodies by hiding them beneath a tomato patch in their yard. After watching the movie, the police drove to the house and investigated the new tomato patch that Billy had planted. And that's where they found Martin's body, buried less than 50 feet from his own home.
The men had also stolen Martin's wallet before burying him, so they were arrested for both murder and armed robbery. The story picked up attention, and the murder became known in the news as the Tomato Patch Killing. In July of 1998, the trials began. Prosecutors presented the jury with the three men's written confessions and evidence found at the crime scene. They urged the jury to stick to the facts when considering the case. A man had been shot to death in his own bed. That means that a murder had been committed. They maintained that regardless of the circumstances, a murder was still a murder, plain and simple. But Billy's defense team argued that he had been suffering from something called battered person syndrome and saw no alternative but to kill his abusive grandfather. Eleven witnesses were called to the stand, and all of them described witnessing Martin abusing his family over the years. Katie took the stand herself and tearfully described the abuse not just inflicted upon her, but inflicted upon her late grandmother as well. Billy also took the stand and described the abuse that he had endured. An expert witness, a psychologist, also testified saying that the family members had endured relentless and traumatic abuse from Martin over the years. The armed robbery charge still hung over the defense team, though. The prosecution went after this aspect of the crime and brought attention to the armed robbery, which the defense team had initially considered virtually an afterthought compared to Billy and his accomplices being faced with murder convictions. Using the state of Georgia's definition of armed robbery, the prosecution was able to argue that armed robbery had technically occurred when Billy took the wallet out of Martin's pocket before burying him, even though Martin was dead at the time. At the end of the day, when everything was said and done, the jury decided that John Stanton was guilty of murder. John was sentenced to life in prison. Jason Jordan was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison as well. As far as Billy Crowder, the jury decided that he should be acquitted of the murder charge, but still found guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter. Billy was also convicted of armed robbery. He was sentenced to five years in prison for murder and a life in prison for armed robbery. In an unprecedented turn of events, after Billy was sentenced, eight of the 12 jurors petitioned the judge who presided over the case. They wanted him to reduce the severe sentence that he had handed down to Billy, but the judge refused to change the sentence. During an interview in prison, Billy Crowder said that he had no regrets for his actions. Thankfully, Crowder was released on parole in November of 2012, and Jason Jordan was released on parole in April 2018. Sadly, John Stanton died in prison. Isn't that such a frustrating outcome? Martin was a physically, emotionally, and sexually abusive monster who ruined the lives of his family members in all sorts of different ways. In this case, I'd say that the punishment was excessive and did not warrant the perpetrators being sentenced to life in prison. The silver lining, of course, is that they were eventually released on parole, but it's not like they were released immediately. Billy had been in prison for almost 15 years before being paroled, and Jason had to wait about 20 years. Certainly not a short time behind bars.
I wanted to get back to the roots of DHF today, the violent, disturbing content that some of you guys crave. Like I've said before in other episodes, I don't do these sorts of topics lightly. They genuinely disturb me, and hopefully they disturb you too, because they're terrible and awful and never should happen. In this episode, we had an example of school shooters who effectively got a slap on the wrist, and an example of a revenge killing where the perpetrators received excessively harsh sentences. What do you think? Let me know your thoughts on Twitter at HHKeegan and Facebook at the Down Home Fear podcast group. My full website is hhkeegan.com. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Hunter Keegan. This was episode 35 of Down Home Fear. Fear with Hunter Keegan is a Lost Dot Press production. Visit hhkeegan.com to support the show. Follow us on Twitter at Down Home Fear and at hhkeegan.